Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode number six. I'm your host, Derek Moore. Today, we've got a great episode. We've got a special guest. You might be familiar with him. Uh, and we'll be talking about sort of buffered equity and, and you know, some different ways to, to get better results in the market, but also limit risk. And uh, we've got, uh, by the way, you know, Jay Pestercelli, you know, and I love him from three and four. Uh, Jay, how are you doing today? Doing great, Derek. Thanks for having me back. I, I can't believe you did one without me. This is number six. I missed number five. Uh, I feel so I feel so slighted. It was a good. We actually went through. Well, I say we. I went through uh, the different presidential years and the results based upon parties. So if anyone wants to check that out, because Jay is the uh, founder of Zega Financial and uh, also author uh, co-author with Wayne Ferbert of Buy and Hedge. It's kind of like, you know, Jay, remember what David Letterman used to have on the guy who, not Felix under, yeah, it was Felix on The Odd Couple. And anytime he had a guest cancel, not that I had a guest cancel, uh, but he used to have him on because he lives so close to the studio. So you're sort of becoming the the Felix Unger of the uh, the podcast, I think. Was that, was that Jack Lemon? Was that the actor's name? Jack Lemon was, uh, he was Oscar. I can't think of the guy's name. No. It, oh, all right. Well, listen, we're wasting time on it. But right. I thought Oscar was uh, the grumpy old guy and Jack Lemon. He was. was. The, okay. But that was Jack Lemon. No. All right. Really Somebody's going to have to look it up and, and shoot us a text. <laughs> anyway. All right. Moving right I could be wrong. <laughs> so, Jay, as as you know, I, I just got back from Hawaii after a couple of days. And, you know, I always like to come up with analogies. And sometimes you do something uh, that gives you one. And so here I am. I'm walking in the ocean in Hawaii, and I stepped on a sea urchin. A sea urchin, of course, is this little ball. It's, it's a ball. It's really small, but it has these black spines that easily penetrate skin. So I stepped on one, and I tell you, it's really painful. Ouch. Um, and, and you can't take them out because you try and take them out. They're too brittle, and they had to. They poured some vinegar on it to try and, you know, because I guess there's some venom in there. I don't know. I got to do more research. But here's the great analogy. And stay with me, everyone, on this one, right? So the next day, I want to go back in the water. And I said, you know, there must be something that would provide a buffer against stepping on a sea urchin or something else. And there was. There's these things called reef shoes, and they have a, a nice thick sole. And so had I been wearing those, I would have had a buffer against the sea urchin. Uh, of course, if something was bad enough in the water, it, it would still injure me. And the interesting thing is I probably would have had more upside in the water because I could get closer to a reef and to rocks. And Jay, that really got me thinking about our topic today, which is the idea of a buffered indexed product, right? Yeah, that's a, that is a wonderful analogy. I'm sorry about your foot, by the way. That must think being in Hawaii and then having to deal with, <laughs> with that. But I, uh, that's true. Listen, that, that is a great analogy for the buffered product because uh, I think, as you may know, um, and maybe, but everybody else does not, the buffered product was really designed to be some, to be a product that, you know, captured the upside of the market, but still put in a level of protection that would uh, insulate you from minor to moderate movements of downward, uh, of downward exposure. And, uh, you know, if, if, if you could indulge me for a second, Derek. Absolutely. Um, uh, the the concept of outperforming in the market was one of those things that we ended up spending a lot of time talking about because um, you know the market was on uh, one heck of a run after the uh, really after 
the dips in 2015 and 2016 started. And we wanted to build a product that would beat the market. And there's two ways you can beat the market, right? Lose less when it's down or make more when it's up. And ZBig ended up being the product we built that was designed to do both at the exact same time. Uh, and so, you know, I don't want to get too much into the details just yet. Um, but before I get off of that, I, I had to look it. I'm sorry we talked about it. It was uh, Jack Lemon and Walter Matthau. Those were the Oh, others. yeah. Okay. And, and then right. eventually Tony Randall and Jack Klugman were the sitcom guys. So, sorry. Done with that. Tony, to but Tony Randall was the the guest that Letterman always seemed to That's have on. That's the one he always brought on was Tony, not Jack That's Lemon. Right. right. That's right. Uh-huh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right. Let's continue about ZBig. So the, my point was, you know, ZBig was built to be that product that would um, do both. And uh, the way it's designed today is certainly in our fully allocated version. And, and of course, other versions have iterated since then. But uh, it is designed regardless of what the market is doing. It is designed to outperform the market for a duration uh, of time. And so I think we could talk about what the risks are associated with it. But I will I will kick it back to you. Um, saying that you're, if you would have been wearing a Z-Big while you're in the ocean, you probably would have had more enjoyment and certainly taken less risk. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's kind of where I was going there. Although, yeah, it, it's a pretty good analogy. But when, when I think of Z-Big, you know, it's it's one of those things where, and, and we, you talked about where the iteration came from. Um, one of the, the questions that automatically people say is, okay, you have something that, gives you more upside, uh, potentially, right? That's the goal, more upside, but has less downside. Like, what am I missing? What, it seems too good. You know, with everything, it's, it's about risk and reward in the market. And, uh, you know, if you're willing to take the risk of the stock market, then, you know, that is exactly the type of reward profile you should expect. But we swap out the risk of the stock market I think this is where you wanted me to go, but and I know you know the answer to, for this to be accurate, but we swap out kind of the risk of, uh, of the stock market while the market is down with bond risk, which is typically less risky. However, we do carry uh, some high yield risk, right? So we do a little shift and typically high yield uh, has a certainly short duration high yield, which is what we use. Um, has a has a lower risk profile and has lower risk numbers than say just straight up stocks. But right, you don't get something for nothing, right? It just it's not the way that it works in the stock market. But we certainly are able to take less risk in the market and assume a different risk profile as we build that that strategy. And I'm probably getting a little too complicated here, but we like to say in a very simple manner that we swap out stock risk for high yield risk in periods of market declines. Maybe that's the best way to kind of package it. Yeah, and and I think a good way to look at this too is that if you think about a typical asset allocation, what happens? Well, there's some blend of you know 70, 30, 60, 40, meaning you know 70% in equities and 30% in bonds. And the idea is to reduce the volatility. And and partly why people do that, especially closer to retirement, is that. Uh, they simply can't have the downside risk. And so adding fixed income uh, basically is used, it reduces the overall volatility and you're looking for better risk-adjusted returns. But I think of this as you're almost trying to swap out the risk of equities for the risk profile of bonds at the same time. And I, I caution to use the word synthetic, 
but you're using options to sort of build positions that control but don't own stock, have a fixed uh, you know downside period, but it's really about risk shifting in the portfolio, right? Yeah, exactly. And we want to have as much stock exposure as we can when the market is going up, when the stock market is going up, I should say. And we want to have the least amount of stock exposure that we can when the market is going down. I mean, that that seems to meet those two criteria about how we beat the market, right? Uh, uh, beat it on the way up or lose less on the way down. That's the general just behind it. And um, I, I would say that uh, the, the neat thing about this is there's no rotational aspect. There's no timing involved. The nat- the construction of the positions we use naturally uh, avoid equity exposure in the first, say, 20 to 25% of the market declines, and they only assume the bond risk there. But as the market is going up, they're also automatically built to over-participate in periods of growth. Jay, what has your research told you about how often and how big declines are in markets. In other words, you know, we we talked about the idea of you have a buffer to the downside. So the the position set up and it's set up usually what for a year and a half, two years or so. Uh, but it's it's kind of like as long as the market doesn't go down past twenty five percent at the end of the term, um, the idea is to to still the goal is to make a couple percent. But you know it it. Looking historically, I know you've looked at this, you've done some research. It's not that often that markets go down, surprisingly. uh, And it's not that often that they go down that much. The problem is, if you're someone like five years from retirement, 10 years from retirement, and you have some sort of catastrophic loss, that becomes problematic. But I mean, just talk about how how often does it happen and um, what's the size that that sort of you've seen? So there's a lot of research based on this, and it's all historical, uh, of course. Uh, naturally, that's uh, uh, something that we, we we can only look back in time and show that this is not forward-looking. But historically speaking, if you go back to, say, the Great Depression 90-something years ago, um, the market dropping more than 25% happens only a handful of times, like 4 or 5% of the time. It's very rare for the market to put two years back-to-back that come out to be a total of 25% lower. And so we're okay, you know, taking that kind of risk. Let's face it, again, this is stock type money, which is stock type risk. So it should be the more aggressive portion of your portfolio. But, um, you know, taking on something that, you know, only happens four to 5% of the time, if that's where your risk lies, we, we like that, right? The odds are in our favor, you know, 95% of, of success or 95% of the time the market is, you know, giving you a favorable outcome. We like that quite a bit. Um, you know, for us, uh, we take a look at other key levels like minus 25, minus 35, minus 40 time, things like that are rare. Um, of course we had one not so long ago in, in 08, but, um, the, 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 the fact of the matter is that the market over two year periods, let's just average two years as a Z big maturity. Um, the market over two year periods is up so much more often, almost a third of the time is it up more than 25%. And so, you know, we like the, the odds are in our favor here. We're, we're our options guys. That means we're probability guys. The odds are in our favor that, you know, the market is going to be up 25% way more often than it's going to be down 25% over that time period. And we love capturing the excess gains with the ZBIG construction uh, that uh, allows us to really beat the market on all those up years. And that just builds and helps you compound growth so much more frequently. 
Um, you know, the market is down zero to let's say 10 or 10 percent about, uh, you know, about 20 percent of the time. And avoiding those down years is so important. So imagine if you can see, Derek, like three scenarios, right? Market's up. That happens, you know, more often than not. And when it does, we're going to capture a little more. Market down, you know, 10 percent happens about, uh, you know, 10, 20 percent of the time. That kind of a scenario, we totally outperform the market only because we're built to have that buffer of protection. That's like that's that's your your water shoe. Right. That's your your that's that's your sea urchin protection. And then in those infrequent cases when the market really is down a lot, 25 percent or more. Well, guess what? We're going to perform similar to the market in those scenarios, but it's so rare that we're okay accepting that type of risk. You know, this brings back a, a thought I had. You know, we're, we're always trying to provide better risk-adjusted returns, and, and there's two ways that, that really you measure that. One is a sharp, which takes into account the discount rate, meaning what you could get risk-free and everybody, well, I shouldn't say everybody, a lot of people use, you know, the three-month treasury for that. And, and the idea is that, look, if you can't exceed at least what the risk-free rate is, um, then there's really no additive value. And then, of course, there's the volatility of returns. Right. Um, the other one is, is something called the, the Sortino ratio. And the Sortino ratio uses some of the same inputs, but then it, it looks at what's called a minimum acceptable return or MAR. And there you could say, well, you know, as long as the, the MAR is uh, you know, greater than zero, then great. But the way you've got the, the position set up, really, I mean, you like as much return as possible. Um, but the buffer aspect is almost setting the minimal acceptable return for the market. Uh, anything you know minus twenty four and higher uh, to at the end of the term. So when I think about risk adjust returns, that's really interesting to me because if you don't take those those ten or fifteen percent losses and you're still able to get a little bit back from there, um, that becomes interesting in a compounding sense, right? Yeah, I mean, listen, this sounds silly, what I'm about to say, intuitively obvious, but the best way to, you know, grow is to avoid losing. And uh, if, if, if it's possible that you could build a portfolio that avoids, you know, those down years in the market, it really does change your overall average, right? Your returns can be notably higher. You know, this is, um, I, I, and I, I'm going to say this for a minute, and I know this seems like you know, we're talking about something that's impossible or something like, wow, why hasn't anybody done this before? This sounds so weird. The answer is banks and large institutions have been doing it for years. Um, nobody's really packaged it, though, for the individual retail investor the way that we have. Um, but if you wanted to you know, go to uh, uh, you know, one of the large brokerage houses and you were looking for some sort of a uh, some sort of a note or something. Th these types of things have existed for a long time. We're just building them in a much more liquid and available way. Um, while we're not making any guarantees, of course, a lot of those do carry guarantees. Um, we're, we're we're building products that have been in existence for twenty years. So um, it's just the format that we're providing them. And so you know, back back to your 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 question here. I, I think that when you when you look at you know where the risk and return lie with a product like this. Uh, it really, it, it's. it's I, I ask myself all the time: if you're going to be in stocks, why would you rather not be in something that is going to beat them on the way up, but avoid the losses on the way down for you know mild to moderate declines to give yourself a better percentage growth rate over the long term? Yeah, and I and I think some of the products you're talking about 
are more opaque in nature. And, and what that means for, um, I'll kind of spell it out. It, they build positions and it, it has sort of a, maybe a max upside, maybe a max downside, or it has some level where if the market goes beyond that, you start to, so it's a similar product, but it's, it's based more upon the, uh, the ability for the, the institution that's created it to be able to fulfill the, you know, whatever the, the promises. And with, with ZBIG, um, the Zega buffered index growth, which of course, you know, I have a, I use for, for my clients, um, the positions, clients get to see the positions. It's a combination of options and, and some sort of fixed income, but they can see the positions. Um, you know, it's not based upon uh, my or your or anyone else's ability to, to fulfill a, a contract. And so I think that's a real benefit because they get uh, mark to market. It's completely liquid. You know, if somebody needs to get out of it, it's it's not difficult. So to me, those are, are some benefits. And like you said, I've, I'm not aware of very many people who, um, I don't want to say nobody else does this, but I'm not aware of many people do this for the individual investor. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, on your, on your point um, on the products that we're using, if I could just backtrack for 30 seconds, you're right. We are using vehicles that are exchange traded, meaning they're out there on the market. They trade all day, every day, meaning you get real-time prices, market-based prices every day. Um, and the portfolios are very liquid, meaning, you know, with some of these structured notes or even things like, I don't know, uh, uh, insurance products like annuities, you're locked in. There's redemption fees, all those types of this. None of that applies to us here, right? We're very liquid. It's transparent. And you get daily intraday pricing. You want to know how you're doing at 12 o'clock in your portfolio? You can take a look. It's okay. You're going to get a price that changes day by day. And so... You're right. I know very, uh, I, I know very few scenarios where anybody could find a product like this, and they, that's one of the unique things about what we do, right? Bringing institutional products to your clients in a way that you know you don't have to be sitting at five million dollars at a you know at a Merrill Lynch to get access to the to the products that really give you uh, a structured advantage in the market. And I I know there's uh, there's always pluses and minuses, and uh, and I know we've talked about you know the other risks that we take. But in all honesty, um, you know apples to apples against stock exposure, we believe we have an advantage. Yeah. So so kind of thinking about the the process here, or, or really what what this is looking to do. I mean, essentially, generally, it's based upon the S and P 500, so U.S. large cap. Although it can be done on you know international markets, on emerging markets. Uh, if there's a market that has a good, li- you know, liquid options market, um, it can be done. But generally, when you're building portfolios, it's some, you know, combination of U.S. large cap and something else. And so, uh, the idea is to outperform on the upside, at least with the uh, the version we're talking about, and then outperform on the downside. In that, you don't rejoin the risk of the market until the market, you know, at the end of the term is down greater than 25. At least how it's being. Uh, set up right now. And then the idea, and you and I mentioned, uh, you know, people listen to to our couple podcasts say these guys really don't like bonds. And it's not that we don't like bonds. We don't like the yield. We don't like the spread between the current interest rate and inflation, meaning there's really no real return on bonds uh, interest. Uh, but then you've got these uh, these fixed income positions, which are used as a funding source for your long exposure. And that's a, a little bit long-winded way to say you're using bonds to sort of feed 
or fund your long positions. But you know, currently you're using um, short duration, high yield. Um, you know, not you may switch to something else, and and uh, you know, but generally the idea is something short duration because we think about high yield and we think about 2008. You say, wait a second, high yield had a really bad year, but Jay, on the short term. Um, that stuff didn't really bounce around as much, the really short duration stuff, right? No, yeah. I mean, naturally, uh, the, so you're, you're right. And uh, short duration usually means it's taking less risk. You know, somebody, uh, if you were to, uh, to to buy a bond that was 20 years till, uh, till maturity versus one that was three years to maturity, there's obviously a greater chance of default than the one that's 20 years versus you know, the one that's only three years. And so just the general gist of bonds uh, shorter duration typically carries less risk. And in an environment like we had in the Great Recession in 08, um, you're right, high yield took about a 30, 35% hit over that time period. But bonds in the you know one to three year maturity range only took an 11% hit. Now, 11 is bad, you lost money, but that's certainly better than what the stock market took or what the, you know, the mid to long term uh, high yield type of uh, uh impact was felt. And so you're right, we stick to the short duration high yield uh, bonds. And actually, we hold positions that um, are hold to maturity bonds, which means we have some reduction of interest rate risk, right? And uh, that's, I think that's an important factor to talk about as well, because if we are in this rising rate environment, or, or or, or are we? I don't know. We're supposed to be. We haven't really felt it yet, but it's a little sarcasm there. But um, if, if we really are going into an environment where rates are going to rise steadily over the next you know, five years, you know, having a bond portfolio carries a little extra risk. Um, that's one of the things we like about the vehicles that we're using, that they, they do hold their bonds to maturity. And we're not, uh, we don't carry nearly as much risk as we do with uh, funds that have a kind of target duration or uh, funds that have to, you know, naturally rotate out of their positions on a regular basis into more expensive ones. So, yes, hold to maturity and the uh, shorter duration means we think we found a, a safer niche to be in because we're looking for stability, right? We're not trying to add volatility to the portfolio. We want stability with stable income that helps pay, helps pay for the upside exposure. Yeah, and 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 just kind of put a, a little color on the on the bond thing. Uh, when you have a ten-year to maturity bond, and interest rates go up, let's say one percent or a hundred basis points, that bond would typically lose roughly eight point nine to nine point two percent. I'm doing the math in my head. Or I'm trying to remember uh, where a one-year bond, if interest rates went up a uh, hundred basis points or one percentage point, would only lose roughly one percent. And so, the further you are out on the curve, the more interest rate sensitivity you have. But in a hold to maturity scenario, you've got these bonds. So even in the short term, if interest rates move around, if you hold them to maturity, eventually uh, they'll hopefully mature at par value, which gets them to a back to a fixed point if they've gone below that. And so, I think it's an important point. And I think the other thing to understand about the the fixed income portion is uh, part of the the calculus is the idea that each month. Uh, these securities um, are spitting out or putting out dividends. And so I think of them as cash flows. And so if you have a position that's set up to hold for, you know, and again, it's completely liquid, you can get out of it, but the, the target is about a year and a half, maybe two years. Part of the calculus is that holding, there's a holding period and there's a cash flow that comes in every month, right? So 
uh, if you if you exit it early, you don't get the benefit of all those cash flows. But if you hold on, you're getting paid each month, right? Yeah, um, it's a real interesting dynamic. Um, when when we put these together, we have an expectation of not only where the bond bonds will be at maturity, but also the amount of interest we receive, the amount of yield we get from that fund, and so uh, we consider that to be our budget. Um, and we use that budget to purchase options now. And so uh, we are planning on those dividends occurring over the entire lifetime of that option. And they are designed to kind of pay us back for the time value associated with the option. And I know we don't want to get into option dynamics and time decay and all of those lovely things that you and I really do enjoy talking about. I know we have no life, so we <laughs> like that. But the the, <laughs> the the thing about it is those um, that payment that we get is something we're counting on. And there's times we'll reinvest it and those types of things. But it's because we have an expectation of stability and yield that it allows us to put money out to buy the stock market exposure right out of the gate. Jay, I think we should do a whole episode on gamma scalping. How does that sound? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, you mean the Incredible Hulk or a different right, kind look of? Look it up, folks. Well, maybe I'll do an article about it. But now, now I, I'm glad you you went through that because I I think that's an important point, and it goes back to the whole idea of bonds as a funding source, not necessarily um, at, as a way to to sort of reduce risk. I'll, I'll say it again, though. We've talked about this, and. We just put, I just wrote an article for the Zega Financial site. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. And we're hearing a lot of talk about people needing more growth in retirement. We did an article, Jay, you and I, uh, back in July about it. And so I would expect to, to see more and more of this. And one of the things that people come up with normally is, well, maybe you need to adjust the asset allocation so that you are heavier in equities, meaning a greater percentage in equities. Uh, and i.e. more volatile investments to try and get the yield. But to me, this always goes back to the idea, you know, people who were in target date funds back in 2008 with a retirement date in like 2009 had substantial drawdowns. And so diversification alone doesn't do it. Asset allocation alone may not necessarily do it. Um, For, you know, when you think about having a buffer, this provides a safety zone or if somebody wants a floor in the portfolio, you know, you can listen to, I think it was episode four, we talked about hedged equity. Um, but Jay, I mean, I think the fact that people need more growth um, over the long period of investing, the idea of having a buffered index growth investment, um, that gets interesting because if you're not taking those losses, you're essentially, as you said, if you don't lose, you get more growth anyway. You know, if you didn't lose... You don't go down fifteen percent. Instead, you made three percent. That's pretty substantial from a growth standpoint. Uh, but at the same time, you know the idea of getting more growth closer to re- you know let's say ten years to retirement. You don't know what type of market you're going to have. So it seems like it just makes a lot more sense to use different kinds of alternatives to what we've always had. Yeah, I mean traditional investing has done a good job. You know, up until let's say a decade ago and. Uh, the, the, the vehicles available to us today just allow you to be more precise and allow you to create a better profile uh, of, of where you want your risk to be and when you want to endure it. And as we've said before, the only thing you could really control is your risk. You can't always control outcomes. You should never be surprised by the outcomes of your investments. You should know them ahead of time. 
uh, even the bad parts of it, but you should at least be aware of it and it should guide your decisions. ZBIG is a great, and, and any protected strategy is a great way for you to continue to have growth in periods of your life where you can't take as much risk. You know, I was talking with somebody yesterday about this and, you know, as you get to that 60, 65 range, right? Those are probably your highest years of earning. Maybe you just came off your highest years of earning. That's when you need your most uh, growth. You you want to be doubling and, 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 and growing. And we've, we've talked about how many doubles you need in the past, but you want that growth there, right? Because at some point, most people feel they're going to be done working 72, 75, whatever that number is going to be. Some a little earlier, some a little later. But um, all of that being said is you, you, you can't afford to have a minus 40% at that highest earning decade for you yourself, right? So if, if you were turning 65, imagine in the year 2000, and by the year 2010 came around, you have a lost decade and you missed out on the growth. You experienced quite a bit of volatility. The strategy of avoiding losses and participating in the up years is really important, especially at that time of your of uh, of your of your you know saving and retirement cycle. So I, I agree, Derek. The the growth, gosh, it's such a it's such an important thing. You know, we're going to be investing till we're ninety, maybe not actively and maybe not aggressively, but. We have to expect these these days that our clients and we will live to 90 years old. And so there is an investment plan that needs to last that long. And, um, you know, at 65, the the growth aspect doesn't end. I mean, you've got, what's that number, 25 more years of growth ahead of you uh, or, or, or of, of earnings ahead of you that you have to be able to, to build towards. And so removing the risk, adding to the upside is really important. Um, I will if we're okay with shifting to one other kind of feasible use uh, for ZBIG or when it's applicable, um, I think is uh, I'm going to shift over to Derek, which is the market timing. Um, you know, you hear about people that need growth and I hear the same thing, but I also hear about, well, the market's at an all time high. I'll wait for it to pull back before I, before I put money into the market, because we all know Buying high and selling low is the way to lose money in the market, right? Well, um, that is one of the benefits of a product that buffers your losses in periods of decline. Um, if you invest today and today is the top of the market and all of a sudden, you know, two years later, the market is down 15%, you'd say, geez, why did I go now? I could have waited two years. But with a ZBIG product uh, or with any kind of buffered or hedge product, Guess what? You didn't take on any more risk to the downside, right? You've you've we've built these products to avoid that loss. So worrying about timing of buying at the top is eliminated. By the way, everybody that's been waiting for the pullback, they didn't get a lot of chances to do so. They had a flicker of hope uh, this past, uh, you know, in February of 2018. We had a little bit of a chance in January, February of 2016, and even in maybe a, you know, a week in 2015 in August and maybe a week in October of 2014, there haven't been a lot of chances in this bull market to wait for that 10% decline. And so if you weren't on it and you weren't, and by the way, every one of those came with a ton of fear and most people said, Ooh, I'm going to wait till 20%, right? And they missed their chance. And that's the great thing about products like this, where you don't have to time the upside in the market or waiting for a dip. You can invest now. And if the market's going to continue to run, you're grabbing the growth, but you're not missing out um, uh, uh, by waiting. 
So sorry I shifted topics on you, but I'll, I'll kick it back it, to you. That was actually perfect timing, Jay, because my next question was going to be, there's a lot of fear right now. So you went there without me even prompting you. And I think it's a great point to yeah. make. Yeah. We're like, we're like uh, yin and yang, man. It's been that way Felix, for a while. Felix and Oscar or Jack, Jack <laughs> Lemon, Tony Landau, right? Is that it? I don't know. But oh, boy, I've, clo- I've closed the page. Yeah. Out. But no, I mean, I think that's a good point. You know, I went back and looked after our, our last uh, discussion and I think the S&P, if you would have invested at the height of the market in March of 2000, I think it would have been until 2013, until you broke above the, you know, the, the old index mark. So not including dividends getting paid, which by the way, the dividend yield has continued to go down over the, you know, the past decade or so. Uh, but I think it's, it's a good point because doing this lets you take away some of the the mystery about, you know, can I get in now? Is it too high? Should I wait? And, you know, we touched on this uh, last time as well. We saw people getting in at the tail end of the run-up last time, uh, but we also saw people get scared by 2008, 2009 and miss five, six, maybe even more years of potential growth. And that's, you just don't get that back. So I, I think it's a really good point to make. Um, the other thing I wanted to to go through quickly, you know, we've sort of started the discussion on the parameters of the idea of designing something uh, and using options to control, not own uh, shares of the, you know, the overall market or an international market index or even emerging markets. Uh, we've talked about the one that sort of has the most uh, potential growth, also, you know, the highest, uh, you know, risk, although the risk is for the first 25% generally is targeted. Uh, not to experience that. Uh, but we've got two other versions. There's sort of a standard which has less upside capture, um, less downside risk, and then you've you've got the one in the IRA. Just talk about the different versions and, and the application for those. Sure. Uh, like all things, risk and reward are linked. The first one that we talked about, uh, which was designed to kind of outperform the market at all points on the curve, um, does carry the most risk. So if you do have a, you know, if we get one of those 5% years where, or two-year periods where the market is down 25%, you'll experience the largest downdraft. Uh, Still not worse than the market, but still pretty large. Um, The standard version uh, gives up a little bit of the upside growth of the market to only have a 10% stock risk. No matter how far down the market is, it's designed to take no more equity risk than 10%. And then in in the IRA version, uh, just because of the restrictive nature of IRAs, what we're allowed to do. Um, it actually doesn't take any equity risk uh, at all. It just carries the risk associated with the high yield. But again, it's with no risk comes less return. It only captures, let's say, 65, 75% of the upside gain. So depending on the flavor that you're looking for and how uh, conservative you want to be, there are three different versions of it. Uh, but it is just it is the simple math of if you want to make more, we're going to take a little more risk. Or if you have the risk appetite, we should be paid for it by getting higher returns. Yeah, I'm glad you went through those three, you know, the three versions and uh, and I think just different applications for different people. Um, and it depends on where people are and sort of their investing lives. I mean, those uh, already deep in retirement who want to take a shot at, at a little bit of growth, uh, the retirement version might make the most sense, right? Or if you're somebody who's got more years to go until retirement and you're looking to buffer yourself against uh, you know some some normal losses or downside you know down to that 25% level it seems to make a lot of sense so 
I'm just going to, you know, the, one of the questions, and I sort of, uh, I set you up for it a little bit with, you know, if, if this is so easy, like I don't get it. And then the other question is, why doesn't everybody do this? Options are not, you know, when you, you go through, and Jay, you know this, you teach people options and you learn options and you learn about puts and calls and simple things like that. When you get into higher level synthetics, and I don't want to scare people with the word synthetic. Like I have synthetic grass in my backyard because I don't want to mow it. And, you know, it's, <laughs> it's going to last anyway. But it's, uh, it's, it, it's a way of uh, creating the long uh, exposure without actually owning the shares. And so I don't, you know, this type of level of options, uh, you know, positioning and, and the calculus behind it and then integrating short duration high yield as a funding source, uh, not everybody can do this. And a lot of people sort of stop at a certain point in options and never get this, this involved. And so my contention, and, and I'll hear your thoughts before we sort of wrap up, um, you know, why doesn't everybody do it? Not everybody can. Yeah. I mean, there's a level of education and uh, you and I both have paid our tuition for that education and 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 we've learned something so hard way we won't go down that path at all but i i think um I, I you and i are both happy to teach everybody how to do this you know i do think every investor should be using some sort of risk adjusted vehicle uh in a in a in a long term uh growth way and uh you're right i i i do get the question why doesn't everybody use this and i say i just think they don't know and they, first off, they don't know it exists. And second off, they don't know how to do it. And, you know, if uh, uh, I would scream from the mountains and be happy if everybody in the world invested using this type of uh, strategy, because it will just help protect and avoid volatility in a portfolio. And we all know the ups and downs in a portfolio, the deeper the down, the harder it is to get back. And so avoiding losses is such an important part of long-term investing. I, you know, I, I, every time somebody asks me that question, I say, I wish everybody did do it. And it's just an awareness and comfort level uh, and education that, that prevents them from doing so, which is why you have guys like us uh, here. Uh, we're happy to educate and we're happy to help. Yeah. And I, I think that's uh, maybe we'll get to the point in, in one day. Uh, I don't see it anytime soon where people will be auto enrolled in their 401ks, not in target dated funds, uh, which is simply a, a shift in the asset allocation based upon age. But hedged equity and buffered equity. We'll keep dreaming though. Jay, thanks again for uh, coming on. I think we'll, uh, we'll end it here and I'm sure we're going to have you back on. Thanks so much, Derek. All right. See you, everyone.